Showtime. Welcome to the show. I'm Brent Holland, and welcome, one and all, to Night Fright. Folks, settle in right away. Get the coffee going. Get the tea going. Get a juice going. Get a beverage of your choice going. Great show tonight, folks. I'm going to want you to settle in and relax for the next hour, so we're going to take you on a wonderful journey. Uh, A lot of great research done with our guest tonight. Let me just start off. You know, folks, in the 1930s, the world let loose the beast. Uh, without question in the form of Nazism led by one Adolf Hitler. Just let me read from the back of our guest tonight. His name is uh, Peter Levende. Levenda? Lavenda. Lavenda. A book called Ratline, uh, Soviet Spies, Nazi Priests, and the Disappearance of Adolf Hitler. This book is an expose of church and state involvement in the escape of Nazi war criminals around the world. It is also a step-by-step refutation of the evidence that Hitler died in the bunker in April of 1945. We're going to be looking at a Hitler conspiracy tonight that our guest tonight says he did not die, as the history books say, outside that bunker. How did the Soviet KGB, the Catholic Church, and government agencies around the world collaborate in the disappearance of Adolf Hitler, the world's most mysterious, monstrous, and wanted fugitive. Ratline is the documented history of the Nazi escape routes, the mechanisms by which thousands of war criminals fled to the remotest parts of the globe. It is the story of how the Soviets lied about Hitler's death and continue to lie and change their story for decades to come. It is the story of a man who died quietly in Indonesia in January of 1970 and how a body was dug up from a German military base four months later and cremated. Oh yeah, Ratline raises questions, but more than anything else, in a time of citizen distrust of institutions in Europe, America and Asia, it is a book that demands answers. Don't go anywhere folks, it's going to be a great ride tonight. Strap in and hang on, here we go. There is a time to question. There is a time for answers. There is a time to challenge. There is a time to speculate. There is a time for change. There is a time for truth. Time is now. Welcome to Night Fright, your voice in the dark for Paranormal and Conspiracy Radio. And now your host, Brent Holland. Welcome, one and all. I'm Brent Holland from Night Fright. Thanks for joining us tonight. Settle in, folks. Get comfy. We've got a great show for you tonight. Our guest tonight is Peter Levenda. And just let me read this a little bit about Peter. We're going to be looking at a Hitler conspiracy that perhaps he did not die, as the history books say, April uh, 30th, 1945, outside his bunker by fire. Peter Lavenda, at the grave of George Anton Pock, is the author of many works on esoteric and political subjects. His most recent work is Tantric Temples, 
which I have a copy of right here. And uh, I'll tell you an easy way to get all his books. So it's www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's guest book cover. That'll take you right to a place online where you can order it from the comfort of your own home. Uh, his most recent work, uh, Tantric Temples, Eros and Magic in Java, also published by Ibis Press. Unholy Alliance, a history of Nazi involvement with the occult. If there's time, folks, we will go there without question. He is a member of the American Academy of Religion and a charter member of the Norman Mailer Society. I'd like to welcome Peter Lavenda to the show for the very first time. Thank you, Peter, and thank you for this book, by the way. Not at all. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, sir. Okay, let's jump in right away. What happened outside Hitler's bunker, Berlin, November, uh, sorry, um, I'm so used to talking about the Kennedy assassination, I've got November 22nd on my mind, sure. <laughs> April, uh, April 30th, 1945, what happened outside the bunker? We were led to believe, Peter, uh, not only in the movies, but in the history texts as well, that the bodies uh, were dragged out of the bunker. Hitler had put a um, cyanide pill in his mouth, bitten down on it, simultaneously blew his head off. Uh, he had poisoned his dog, Blondie, and also Eva Braun had taken a cyanide pill herself. The bodies were dragged up the stairs, thrown in a pit, gasoline poured over them, and lit on fire. Such is that's not the, the case. Such is not the case. No, not exactly. The, these, this information was based upon eyewitness testimony given by SS officers who were prisoners of the Russians, the British, and the Americans. There was no forensic evidence to show that Hitler and Eva Braun actually died in the bunker or died at all, for that, for that matter. We are talking about people who had um, motives for lying to the Allies people who had motives for lying to um, the, the Russians for sure. They were being tortured. Uh, there was all sorts of extreme uh, interrogation techniques being used on them. We don't know what the Brits were doing to their Nazis. The Americans had Nazis, and none of the stories matched. None of the eyewitness testimony was consistent. In fact, even with one witness at, telling different stories time and time again, you got no consistent stories. So the story that we have was created by a British intelligence officer working for MI6. He was told, you have three months. You have to prove, you have to prove that Hitler committed suicide, died in the bunker, that he's dead, end of story. This is the mission he was given by British intelligence. They didn't say find out if he was dead, find out how he died. They said, this is your mission. You have to prove that this happened because the Soviets, particularly Stalin, is telling us that we have Hitler in custody or that the Americans have Hitler in custody or that Hitler escaped through Spain and he went to South America but at any rate the Allies are protecting uh, Hitler somehow they have secret knowledge we have to show the Russians that what they're what they believe is nonsense so what yeah. was what was to their advantage to prove the fact that Hitler did not die that day um, in terms of the Russians, I guess, I, let me rephrase that, I, I just realized I've said it incorrectly. What was to their advantage to prove that Hitler did die that day and did not escape? Um, was it more that they were trying to protect the living Hitler or was it to the fact that they were just trying to discredit the, the Soviets, I guess, um, what was emerging as the uh, Soviet bloc? Well, the, the motivation is very interesting, I think, because uh, Stalin believed that the, the other allies, of course, the Russians were our allies up until about that time. The Soviets believed 
that we were protecting Hitler for our own purposes because to us, communism was going to be the enemy, the post-war enemy of the Western world. Therefore, we were protecting not only Hitler, but it's documented, very well documented, we protected a lot of Nazis. We protected, uh, Josef Mengele was protected, Walter Rauf, Klaus Barbie, Franz Stengel, the list goes on and on and on. Adolf Eichmann escaped. So many Nazis escaped, why wouldn't we have tried to protect Adolf Hitler if we're protecting virtually everyone else? A handful of Nazis went to Nuremberg, a handful, you know, executed, some just went had prison terms, but some of the worst monsters of the Third Reich managed to escape. They did. Why did they let them escape? Um, again, what was to the advantage of the Allies to have monsters, you say, like a, a Klaus Barbie, an Adolf Eichmann, although their Israelis went and got them? Um, I think it was 1962. 1960. 60. 1960, I think. Yeah, yeah I think mm -hmm. you're right, actually. Um, what was to their advantage to let these monsters escape? I mean, they just fought a war against these guys. They'd seen the concentration camps. They'd seen the murders of civilians right across Europe. That's true. But the Al just like Church of them, saw communism as the greater enemy. Communism was going to be the gr a great threat. Uh, we remember General Patton. Uh, famously said we were pointing our guns in the wrong direction. Mm. I mean, he had hired some of these Nazi criminals to uh, manage the displaced persons camps, which had been converted from concentration camps. You see, so he's converting these camps. Uh, he's putting Nazi guards in charge, which is one of the most the worst crimes I could imagine, to have a, a prisoners in concentration camps realize that their new guards are the old SS guards. This is what Patton was doing. He thought that the Germans were uh, great soldiers, they had machismo, they had the warrior spirit. We have to go and fight the communists because that's where the real enemy is. And I think that was a belief that was shared among a lot of people, even in the military high commands of Great Britain, of England, uh, of England and of America. So I think these beliefs made it seem that it's as if we have to protect these guys. They understand about how the Russians work. They have spy networks inside the Soviet Union. We have to protect them, bring them out of Europe, and make sure the Nazis, the, uh, so the Soviets don't get a hold of them, and don't try to turn those networks against us. So it was a, a great game, essentially, like what was being played in Afghanistan a hundred years ago uh, was now being played in Europe. Protect the Nazis because we're fighting the Russians. You write that 1947 was kind of a pivotal point towards protecting uh, the Nazis because prior to that they were hunting them down, but 47. Uh, I guess what happened there was uh, the Soviet Union really uh, became the Iron Curtain at that point. That's correct. Um, until 47, even as late as late 19, even as, as early as late 1946, what you had were Americans who were hunting down the Nazis to prosecute them. Suddenly, the same offices that were hunting them to prosecute them were now hunting them to hire them. I mean, the whole about-face took place, especially in 47, with the creation of the National Security Act, the Central Intelligence Agency. Suddenly, we realized that we have a new enemy in the world to fight. It's the Soviet Union, and the best people who know about the Soviet Union would be the Nazis who have been fighting them, who had invaded Russia, who understood what was going on there. So, yes, there was a major turnaround at that point, and suddenly we're protecting Nazis.
Folks, our guest tonight, Peter Lavenda, he's written a terrific book called The Rat Line, Soviet Spies, Nazi Priests, and we're going to go there right away, the Vatican's uh, part and parcel to how the Soviets escaped as well, and the disappearance of Adolf Hitler. Now, The Rat Line, folks, wasn't uh, a single source for Nazis to escape on. It wasn't going from A to B. Sometimes they would go from A to Z and then back and then uh, to G and then H and, and finally get to B. <laughs> If you sure. will, um, part and parcel to that was the Vatican played a major role, which, you know, I've known about this for a while. But every time I read um, how they got in bed with the Nazis, the Vatican, it just uh, boggles my mind um, uh, because I, I guess I've held the church in such high esteem uh, for so many other things. And all of a sudden they come along and they get in bed with the, the slime of humanity. Can we talk a little bit about uh, how even the Pope signed the Concordiat with um, the Third Reich in the 30s, 1933? Well, sure. Again, we have to realize that uh, the Nazis and the Church had a few goals in common. One of them was to fight communism. It's hard for us to believe, uh, people of my generation understand it, but younger people may not believe that communism was considered to be a major cultural, political, economic enemy. Uh, worse than what we consider of terrorism or Islamic uh, fundamentalism today. Communism worse was they had a huge base, the Soviet Union and China and to a certain extent Cuba. So we have developing nations with uh, tremendous missile power, huge armies, and they are, as far as we're concerned, out to get us. So it was much more important to cut deals with the Nazis to fight the Soviet Union than anything else. The church saw that as their goal. Uh, Hitler was born a Catholic. Himmler was born a Catholic. So much of the Nazi high command was Catholic. It was like a, 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 a club of lapsed Catholics. You know, so they had sort of cultural ties back to the Vatican. They they had these relationships. They understood each other. They all hated the communists. To the church, communism was atheism. It was godless. The Nazis were basically pagan, but there was a strong element of old-style German Christianity among a lot of the Nazis could work together. So you have Eugenio Pacelli who was a cardinal at that time, who signed the Concordat with the Nazis, with the Nazi government. And what the Concordat did was it, uh, the church basically told the Germans that they would not interfere in Germany with the German Catholic Church there, which essentially signed over the German fate, the, the Catholic fate to the Germans, and said, we're not going to protect you, we're not going to interfere. As long as you don't interfere in Vatican City, we won't interfere uh, in Nazi Germany. That was step one. Pacelli would then become Pope Paul VI a bit later on. But before this happened, uh, Pacelli was uh, involved in, uh, I mean, Pacelli became pious to 12th, excuse me. That's okay. Uh, his I, was, I was going to correct him, but that's I was, fine. Right. Let's keep right. Pacelli, be Pacelli became pious to 12th. Uh, Cardinal Montini would become Paul VI, and Montini was running a part of the rat line after the war. So you had uh, one pope who was playing footsie with the Nazis. We're not really sure of his motivations. Historians come out and they try to defend the Pope. Uh, some others are, are extremely harsh where the Pope is concerned, where Pius XII is concerned. But we do know for certain that Pius XII was much more obvious in his hatred and opposition to communism than he ever was to Nazi Germany. He was very outspoken where communism was concerned. He was very muted in his response to the Nazis. That might have been for survival of the church, he might have felt much more secure in the Vatican shouting against Russia than he was shouting against Germany next door. 
I don't know the reasons, the motivations, it's very hard to tell. But what it meant for the laity, what it meant for the Catholic layperson going to church and going to mass was that there was support, tacit and implicit support for the Nazi regime. Cardinals, archbishops, bishops, monsignors, they, there were so many that were pro-Nazi, actively helping uh, support the Nazi cause in Croatia especially, but also in Austria, in Italy, in Germany, all around the world and in Latin America, most importantly, as the rat line will develop later on. Let's talk a little bit about some names now. You had mentioned um, uh, Pacelli, of course, who later on, folks, as you know, became the Pope. How did they justify the Holocaust in their own minds? These are supposed to be humanistic people. Um, how could they turn their back on something so uh, barbaric as something called the Holocaust? Well, you know, anti-Semitism uh, was brought to you by the Catholic Church. I mean, that they're the people who brought us anti-Semitism in the first place. Christianity brought us this idea that the Jews are responsible for the death of Christ. This was especially important when, the, when uh, Rome acknowledged the Catholic Church and gave it a regular status, state status. You couldn't suddenly have the church say, oh, by the way, the Romans killed Jesus. It was far easier to use the, the, the typical scapegoat, which would have been the Jews. The Jews were responsible. So that's one aspect of it. But if we talk about the church, we also have to talk about people in American intelligence. Uh, Alan Dulles, oh boy. Uh, at, at the end of the war, famously was telling the Nazis, well, you know, we don't really care much about the Jews. That's going to be a different story. We care about the communists. What you're going to do to the Jews, that's up to you. I mean, these speeches were recorded. They were written down by, by people who were at these meetings. So there was this kind of understanding among a lot of people that we really didn't care. So the church thought, well, if nobody else cares, well, you know, why should we care? Um, the famous ship uh, of the damned, you know, the voyage of the damned. I mean, the, the Jews in, in a large ship were sailing around the world. Nobody would take them in. The Nazis used that as an excuse as well, saying, well, look, nobody wants them. No one's going to defend them. It's just not important. So there was this general assumption that uh, anti-Semitism was kind of okay. And so the church, which had a history of anti-Semitism anyway, it found it just too easy to go along with it. And you had so many high-ranking clergymen. I mean, Alois Hudal, a bishop, an Austrian bishop of the Catholic Church, wrote a book, The Foundations of National Socialism, in which he praised the Nazi party, uh, praised Hitler, gave Hitler a signed copy of the book. Uh, he was definitely on the side of what Hitler was trying to do in Germany, and the Jewish question was not really a major question. Archbishop uh, Sarich of Croatia, uh, and his monsignors and his bishops were writing articles in the Croatian newspapers about, well, what, were, what are we going to do about this Jewish problem? You know, I mean, it was, uh, there was a solution in mind. Uh, and obviously the Croatians put it, put it to the test. Uh, the Ustashi, the famous Nazi uh, military organization in Croatia that was pro-Nazi, set up concentration camps, murdered Jews, not only Jews, murdered uh, Serbian Orthodox, murdered Muslims as well. So the whole thing was a, was a mess, a complete ethnic, racial, religious mess. Anybody could virtually do anything they wanted. They would have justification from somewhere. Peter Levend is our guest tonight, folks. I hope you're as riveted to the seat as I am because um, this is incredible news. Uh, the possibility that Hitler 
may have made it out of the bunker alive. And I'm going to go and ask Peter in just a few seconds why he feels that, or how I should say, he got out of that bunker. Because don't forget, the Soviets were encircling Berlin completely at the time. So we're going to get into all those details. Easy way to get the book. It's called Ratline, Soviet Spies, Nazi Priests, and the Disappearance of Adolf Hitler. As always, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's guest book cover, and that'll take you right to a spot where you can order this book from the comfort of your own home. And Canada, folks, was part and parcel to turning away Jews. Let's not forget the Bennett government had come out and said, how many Jews should we accept? And they said, none. None is too many. They turned Jews away and they sent them to the camps. Canada was right in there with that, folks. Let's not forget, and in Quebec, um, the father of the Quiet Revolution, um, Linel Gruhl, who there's monuments made this day. There's even a metro station named after this slime ball. Uh, right there in Quebec, folks, my old hometown of Montreal, he was considered uh, an anti-Semite for the Catholic Church. He used to write uh, all kinds of derogatory things about the Jews. Uh, they should not be allowed to vote, for example. So Canada was right there amongst this mass of anti-Semitism that was going on as well. We don't come out clean on this end, folks, just because we're Canadian. Um, let's go back now. I was going to... How could they get Hitler out? of a surrounded Berlin. Um, virtually the Soviet armies were surrounding Berlin at the time. Berlin was just crumbling. Uh, the Soviets were running through the streets. They were encircling and getting smaller and smaller. The noose was getting smaller. How could Hitler escape something like that? Well, uh, number one, we don't know precisely what day Hitler got out. We can make an assumption, based upon the evidence that we have, that it was sometime towards the end of April for sure. Whether it was April 30th or May 1st or maybe perhaps a little earlier or later, we don't know. However, Hitler had not been seen in public for about a year by that time. He had made no personal appearances. Also, can Eva I just Braun, ask you a question? Yes. I'm sorry to interrupt sure. you. Um, there was an attack on his life, um, Valkyrie, Operation Valkyrie. I think it was July 22nd, 1944. I think so. Yeah. 1944. Yep. Was he seen alive after that? No. He was not He was not photographed alive. He was not filmed alive after 44. He became extremely paranoid, ah. went underground. But you believe he, just, he survived that? It wasn't just propaganda. That's another conspiracy. You know I'm getting off track. I apologize. Sure. No, I've heard that as well. But I think he yeah. survived it. I think that he survived it and at that point understood that he had to make uh, some deals to get out of town. If he couldn't trust his own army and his own generals, uh, you know, what, what chance did he have, really? He was surrounded by people who wanted him dead. Uh, the military, the German high command wanted him dead. I mean, there was so much of this going on that a person as paranoid as Hitler was would have said, okay, the, you know, the jig is up. I have to find a way to get out of here. And I think he made preparations. We know, for instance, that um, his uh, favorite pilot, Hannah Reich, flew in and out of, uh, of Berlin in the very last days. That's right. It was tough going, but she did manage to get out. Uh, some planes were flying out of Germany to Denmark and to Spain right in April, in the last uh, couple of days of April. There were a lot of flights going in and out. Hitler could have made it out that way. But I think there might be another way. No one knew that Eva Braun existed until after the war. Eva Braun was one of the Nazis' best-kept secrets. Uh, according to the story, they got married uh, the day before they committed suicide. That's the story. Would you have stopped an old man in a wheelchair covered with a blanket being pushed by his nurse? 
If that was Eva Braun and Adolf, that would have been a way they would have gotten out of war-torn Berlin. Just shave off the stupid mustache, mm. and he would have been able. He, no one would have recognized him. In fact, what they did find were at least two Hitler dolls. The Soviets found one. They had photographed it. They thought it was Hitler. They were very happy. Then it was proven it was not Hitler. They found another double living a quiet life in another German town. Hitler had a number of doubles. So that could have caused a lot of uh, confusion as well as the Allies marched in, particularly the Soviets. So I think there was a lot that had been built up in advance. And you know, Peter, that adds credence to your, to your theory that he did make it out alive, because why else would they have doubles, if you will, uh, especially if the body was burned? There'd be no reason then at that point to keep the doubles around. So this, you know, it's a little bit of smoke and mirrors, folks, here, of course. You've got a double over here that everybody thinks, oh my God, here's Hitler's body, and then another one and another part of town there's Hitler's body there so they're looking right. in different places uh, the focus is not on where Hitler really is and I think that adds a lot of credence to your theory Peter because um, if Hitler once Hitler's dead they would want to end the war as quickly as possible they wouldn't want to keep everything going to drive Germany down into the dumps as Speer said you know we can't destroy the country sure and I think it was important for a certain segment of the of the population, particularly the Nazi uh, leaders that were loyal to Hitler, to believe that Hitler was still alive, there was still a possibility of a comeback. That kept the networks going, that kept the money flowing out of the country. Uh, a lot of treasure, artworks, gold uh, left Germany that had been captured by the Nazis has never been found. It was shipped all over the world. And I think this helped to finance uh, what would, ha would happen later. From my point of view, the Nazis did not see the end of World War II the way we saw it. They, did, they saw the destruction of Germany, the occupation of Germany by the Allies, but a lot of them just moved the, the war to other locations. So you had large Nazi presence in the Middle East. You had a large talk, Nazi presence yeah, in Latin America. So, let's go there right away. Let's go. I wanted to talk about the Grand Mufti. And yep. uh, there's another slime ball, folks, and we'll get into that right now. If you, just let me tell folks who we're speaking with. I apologize. I'm so wrapped up in the show. <laughs> let me just plug his book some more. It's a terrific book, folks. You're really going to want to add this to your library without question because he's done incredible research. Um, there's a whole section here that we're about to get into on the Middle East and how the Nazis uh, helped uh, create... Uh, not the Muslim Brotherhood, but they became part and parcel with the Nasser regime to uh, try and overthrow the Israeli government, um, take down Israel, and still to this day. So a lot of the techniques uh, that the terrorists are using were part and parcel to the Nazis. The book is called Ratline, Soviet Spies, Nazi Priests, and the Disappearance of Adolf Hitler. The author's name is Peter Lavenda. Easy way to get it, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's guest book cover. Take you right to a spot online. You can get it right from the comfort of your own home, and uh, you're going to really enjoy this. Okay, the Grand Mufti. Now, here's a guy I've been reading about since I started reading about Israel. Um, this guy was... Uh, I guess uh, Hitler, he could have been Hitler's brother very easily. Same ideology, uh, they both thought the same way, both as ruthless. Uh, can sure. we talk a little bit more about the Middle East and uh, how the Nazis escaped to the Middle East? And as you said, they just moved laterally. Sure. Virtually it laterally was, is the quote. Right. They just, they just shifted their operations as far that's as right. I'm concerned. Yeah. Uh, the, Grand, the Grand Mufti was an interesting guy. Um, he had essentially worked 
with the British during World War I, uh, they had a, a common interest in getting rid of the Turks. The Ottoman Empire was crumbling, you know, the story of Lawrence of Arabia and all of that. The idea was get rid of the Turks, the British were going to help us do that. So at the, when the dust had cleared, suddenly there was a Balfour Declaration, a Sykes-Picot Agreement, a whole bunch of secret communications between various Arab sheikhs and the British, and suddenly everybody realized that what they had fought for uh, suddenly was not really on the table anymore. Yeah. So you had the British and the French carving up the territory. Uh, Palestine had been given as a Jewish homeland. So suddenly the Mufti, at this point, he's become a very religious guy. He's become very active uh, in his movement in a Palestine independence movement, you might say. So in the 1920s now, they're going nuts after World War I when they realize what's been going on. World War II comes along, and the Germans are promising the Arabs that, number one, there's no problem with, a, with, a, with a, an Israeli homeland. It's just not going to happen, number one. Number two, we both have a common enemy, the Jews. And, you know, the whole Jewish Masonic world domination conspiracy, which the Arabs love today, which you read about constantly in the Arab press in the Middle East. The protocols of the, the elders of elders Zion. Of, yeah. Sure. That yeah. was what turned Hitler on back during the days of yeah. when he was writing Mein Kampf. So all of this became a common goal. Uh, they both saw. They both believed in a sort of dictatorial frame of government, with uh, with some of the the radical Muslims. You have this belief in Sharia law mm -hmm. and all of these radical ideas of church and state being united. Uh, to Hitler, it was the same thing. Church and state was united, except that church wasn't so hot, wasn't so big in the uh, in the agenda. But still, there would have been with Himmler certainly. I mean, they were replacing Christianity with paganism, uh, with the SS. So there was a common goal. To the Nazis, the Arabs were still Semites. They were still not really quite human beings, but they had a common enemy and a common goal. So the Grand Mufti, the head of a large uh, Palestinian uh, population, uh, very popular throughout the Middle East, as an opponent of the British and an opponent of the French, is now going to Berlin to meet with Hitler. And he raises an entire SS division to fight uh, alongside the Nazis, the SS Hanshar Division, mm -hmm. which is composed mostly of Bosnian Muslims. So suddenly now you have a Bosnian Muslim SS division, and they're wearing fezes, you know, and they're giving their goose and they're doing the Heil Hitler and all of that, but they're on the side of the Nazis. When Germany fell in 1945, the Mufti saw the handwriting on the wall, he escaped using his own rat line, he winds up back in the Middle East, and he's still agitating there uh, for years in Cairo. Yeah. yeah. The war ends, a lot of Nazis who had made very good uh, relationships with regimes in North Africa as the Africa Corps was moving through, men like Walter Rauf uh, was following the Africa Corps and exterminating as many Jews as he could in their wake. Um, suddenly, they're all looking for births in Cairo. Can I Cairo just tell the folks who Walter Rolf was? He, folks, sure. uh, I'm sorry, I just want to try and orient. A lot of my audience, um, un unlike the Coast to Coast audience and several other shows like this, are university students. Um, that's big demographic that follows me, and a lot of them just don't know the history behind this stuff. So every now and then, I just stop and explain things for them. So um, just to try to bring them up to speed, because it's important. This was a guy, folks, before uh, before they brought in the uh, the final. Well, it was part of this final solution before they brought in the concentration camps, the extermination camps with gassing. One of the ways they were exterminating Jews, they would back up a truck and they would open the back doors of the truck, the Jews would climb in, they'd close the back door. Then they would take a hose from the exhaust pipe and plug it back into the truck 
and the Jews would be gassed that way. What was happening was it was too slow. Uh, not enough Jews could be killed at the same time. So in uh, for the sake of efficiency, they were looking for something else. Hence, the death camps came into being where they could kill upwards of 2,500 people in one fell swoop. Uh, that's the background of this monster, uh, Walter Rolf. So just to let you know. I'm sorry, my friend. No, no, that, that's exactly right. And Walter Rolf um, survived the war. Uh, he yeah. was... People who believe that when there hear was this? no... People who believe there was no Holocaust, okay, have to understand it at first. The first thing is that the Nazis went everywhere in the world they could find Jews, wherever they had access, put them in camps and killed them. So this wasn't a question of there was no such program in place. That's number one to remember. Walter Rauf is a prime example of this. Number two, Walter Rauf did escape. He escaped to Egypt. Uh, he worked for the Egyptians for a while. He worked for British intelligence for a while. And he worked for the Israelis. Can you imagine this slime ball yeah. ended up working for the Israelis, spying? He was working for Syria as well as a triple spy. So you're exactly exactly what I just read. Um, he's working for the Syrian intelligence. He was giving that information to MI6, I think it was, uh, right. British intelligence, and uh, the Israeli Mossad. Unbelievable. Yeah. So, well, know. the Israeli Mossad used him to spy on the Egyptians because he had excellent yeah. contacts with the Egyptians. They didn't care that this was the Walter Ralph, yeah. who was the first guy to invent you know, a, a mass extermination of the Jews. This was real politic. This is, this is the real That's world, right. and this is what goes on in the real world. We can talk ideology all we want to, but when it comes down to brass tacks, it's a whole different ballgame. You're exactly right. You're exactly yeah. right. Walter um, Ralph escaped. Okay. And he, he, is, he lived a nice, ripe old age in the country of Chile. He died a couple of, about 10 years, years ago or so. Never had a problem after that. Unbelievable, isn't it, folks? Uh, all that yeah. is in this book, exquisitely written, exquisitely researched, I must say. The research in this is impeccable, as with his other book, Tantric Temples. Easy way to get both books, folks, www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's guest books. That'll take you right to a spot where you can order either one from the comfort of your own home. The book we're discussing tonight is called Ratline, Soviet Spies, Nazi Priests, and the Disappearance of Adolf Hitler. Our guest tonight is Peter Lavenda. Peter, you made a wonderful analogy in here. You said that in many ways we're still fighting the First World War. We never finished it. That's right. Um, I had never heard that before, but when I read it and I read your analogy, I thought, oh yeah, this guy knows what he's talking about. He really does. Can we talk a little bit about that? Sure. I'm convinced that uh, 20, 30 years from now or 100 years from now, people will look at the 20th century and they will call it the second 100 years war. I think all the problems that we face today began then. There would not have been a Nazi party had it not been for World War I and for the Versailles Peace Conference and all of that. There would have been no problems in the Middle East except the British and French just arbitrarily decided to carve up the territory. They created modern Iraq. They created Kuwait, Syria, Jordan, uh, Israel. Uh, all of these places were carved up by who? T.E. Lawrence and Gertrude Bell, two archaeologists who were spies. They decided what those borders were going to look like. It's an incredible story. But we're suffering because of that. We're suffering because of the Balkans, we're, because of the former Yugoslavia. All of this goes back to World War I and all the mistakes that were made by the Allied governments at that time. Not only the Allies, obviously, uh, Germany, Austria, everybody was shooting at everybody else. The Russians were, were involved. But because of that mess, 
of the beginning of the 20th century, we're still fighting all those old battles. We haven't gotten past those boundaries, the literal boundaries and the virtual boundaries that these people have essentially carved in our minds as to who's our friend, who's our enemy, what we have to defend. So we're still fighting that war. World War II was just an extension. I mean, there was no real cessation of hostilities. Agreed. Wars kept going on and going on and going on. They've still been going on. Absolutely, yeah. Um, as you alluded to before, and we spoke about before, the Nazis just went, they, they moved laterally. They just went yes. to the Middle East, and we're still fighting those wars. I, I think it's dynamite. Uh, actually, a great book, folks. Ratline, www.nightfrightshow.com. Guest tonight is Peter Lavenda. Okay, Peter, let's get to the pox, shall we? Let's go back sure. to Hitler. Okay. okay. You're in Indonesia doing work, researching this um, book. Right. Okay. What happens at that point, sir? Well, uh, I was researching tantric temples, which is a completely different <laughs> subject, essentially. But it's about power. It's about political power and the use of power, uh, but the religious aspect of, of that whole concept. So as I'm crawling around the jungles and the the temples there in that in that world uh people are telling me this particular rumor they had known of me because of unholy alliance i had given a speech at their university there back in 2007 i was a loose fellow i was studying at their university in uh, joe jakarta and they're telling me did you hear about you know that hitler escaped and died in indonesia and i said yeah right i mean i had written about hitler's suicide and unholy alliance i'm invested in that particular story of the suicide on april 30th because it's Beltane, it's Valpurgis Noct, it's famous if you've read Bram Stoker's Dracula, it's this weird pagan rite holiday, and I thought this is perfect, Hitler committing suicide on that day. So I dismissed this concept entirely, that Hitler could have escaped and wound up in Indonesia of all places. However, two things happened that brought, it, that brought my attention back. One was they showed me some articles that had been written in Indonesia in the 1980s, uh, by an Indonesian doctor who claimed that he met Hitler on a remote island in Indonesia. And he claimed it was Hitler because he eventually got hold of the man's documents, uh, a diary that was written in German and a lot of other paperwork. And amongst all those papers, I noticed a name, Draganovich. And when I saw that name, I thought, oh, no, I've got to follow this up now because nobody in those days knew who Draganovich was. This was not a household term. Draganovic was a Catholic priest, a monsignor of the uh, Croatian church. Mm -hmm. And he was the man who basically invented the rat line. He was working for American intelligence, the CIC, counterintelligence corps, based out of Salzburg, Austria. And he was the man who was the middleman between the Catholic church, the allies, and the Nazis. He helped so many of the most famous Nazis in the world escape personally. He arranged their, their false papers, their false documents, their Vatican passports, their Red Cross documents. He did all that himself, single-handedly, with, of course, the, the cooperation of the church, the Red Cross, and the allied governments. So this was a, a name to conjure with. And when I saw Draganovich written in these documents, I thought, oh boy, I have to, get, I have to give this a closer look. Uh, this guy died in 1970, the, doc, the, the uh, Indonesian guy who they claim was Hitler. He had died in 1970. That means that this diary was earlier than 1970. Mm -hmm. Nobody had heard of Draganovich in the 1960s, the 1950s, unless you were a Nazi hunter. That's about the only way you would have heard about this name. So if he used Draganovich to escape, he had to be a high-ranking Nazi. He had to be somebody like a Mengele, like an Eichmann, like a Klaus Barbie. He had to be somebody important, number one. Number two, if he wound up in Indonesia, that meant he felt that even South America wasn't safe. So who was this guy? Mm. Why wouldn't he have stayed where everybody else stayed? The Middle East, Latin America? He's the only guy I knew who went all the way to Indonesia to a remote island and hid out there. 
So I started to pay attention. And then a guy that I know, Dr. Nick Bellantoni, the state archaeologist of Connecticut, had gone to Moscow in uh, 2009, I believe, and discovered that the skull the Russians claimed that they had was Hitler's skull was not even the skull of a man. Can you imagine, folks? This is incredible, incredible research that's just coming out now by Peter Levinda. Sorry, sir. Yeah, well, he, he brought it. He saw the skull. He examined it and knew right away it wasn't a man's cranium. And then he took a piece of it back to the States where they analyzed it genetically and everything else. It's not even, it was of a woman. It wasn't Ava Braun because the age was wrong. Everything was wrong. It was an unknown anonymous skull that the Soviets had claimed for so long was Hitler's skull that they had the proof. Suddenly, there's no forensic evidence to show that Hitler even died. So with these two pieces of information, I said, how can I ignore this story? I had written Unholy Alliance, after all. Right. I was covering the Nazi uh, rat line since 1979. Uh, I had been to Chile, risked my life down there trying to uncover that information. And now I'm being told that maybe Hitler escaped. And it took me a long time to get my head around that. But the more I looked at it, and the more I looked at the FBI uh, records of their follow-ups of Hitler sightings around the world, and I began to look at them with new eyes, with a new uh, understanding, suddenly some of it didn't seem so far-fetched anymore. Pretty scary stuff. You've mentioned Chile, and I wanted to get there in a few minutes, but let's go there now, because indeed, um, when I was reading the book, even though... I knew the I knew the outcome of the book. I knew it was written. I didn't think you were going to make it out of there. Can we talk a no. little bit about Chile? That was really yeah. touch and go for you. It was touch and go, and I didn't realize how bad it was really mm. until after it was over. But in 1979, I, on my own dime, basically went to Chile during the Pinochet regime mm. because I had heard rumors that there was a secret, weird Nazi estate down there that was part voodoo operation and part, you know, Nazi safe house and all of this. And I was researching a book that would later become Sinister Forces. And so I started to say, well, this is perfect for my book because it shows the relationship between church and state, which has always fascinated me, especially extreme politics and extreme religions. Let me go down to Chile and see if I can see this place with my own eyes. What an idiot, you know. I was 28 years old, invulnerable, you know. Nobody could get me, so I get on a plane like an idiot and I go down to Pinochet's Chile, the middle of martial law, and I get on a bus and I go to this uh, place called Colonia Dignidad, high up in the Andes Mountains, a couple of hours south by bus from Santiago. And uh, I'm apprehended, basically. Uh, they take my passport. Um, they take the film out of my camera. Um, they start asking my driver all sorts of questions. They thought I was an Israeli commando. Mm. Now, I don't know if your viewers can really get a good look at my stature, but I'm hardly an Israeli commando. At those days, I was 120 pounds, probably. Uh, soaking wet. Uh, there was just no way I was a physical threat to anybody. But anyway, their assumption was I was an Israeli commando. Um, but I got out with my life because I was lucky on that day. Uh, they were voting in the German Bundestag whether or not to extend the statute of limitations on Nazi war crimes uh, forever. Uh, they felt, as I found out later, that I was there as a kind of agent provocateur. I was going to be there to kind of force them into doing something stupid uh, that would swing the vote against them. Because as I also found out later, Colonia Dignidad was being used as a Nazi safe house. Many famous war criminals passed through the colony. Um, eventually it was raided uh, long after Pinochet was out of power. Uh, they found horrible 
circumstances there, uh, terrible cases of uh, child abuse, sexual abuse, uh, human rights violations, uh, as long as your arm, um, all sorts of uh, buried uh, weapons, buried automobiles. I don't know why they buried cars, but they did. And documents, which I've been trying to get a hold of, which has been impossible. The Chilean government will not release the documents they found, but I'm sure my passport copy is in there. So this was a very horrendous time. Uh, when I got back out of the colony, when they let me go, I was stopped all the way back to Santiago on the bus that I had been on. The military would get on and ask if I was on the bus. They would ask the driver. So the cooperation between the army of Chile and these Nazis on this remote hilltop estate was very, very tight. When I got back to my hotel room, there was a letter waiting for me, a note saying I was on the next flight out, which was okay with me. And when I got back to, uh, oh yeah, when I got back to to Miami, I wasn't even supposed to go to Miami, but that was the next flight. I found out, number one, there's a newspaper article about the vote in the German uh, Bundestag uh, extending the statute of limitations uh, on Nazi war crimes, so the Nazis lost that case. But as I got off the plane, I was also stopped by two members of the American uh, intelligence agencies who walked up to me, asked me for my name, looked to see my passport, nodded, smiled, and walked away. I never knew what that was all about. So this was something that showed a kind of collusion that took place between the Pinochet regime, a Nazi organization in Chile, which, has been in, which was involved in the Pinochet takeover against Allende and torturing political prisoners there. Uh, Boris Weisweiler disappeared at the colony. He was an American who was hiking in the region a few years after I was there. He was brought to the colony by troops, Chilean troops, and no one's ever seen or heard from him again. So there's been a lot of, of problems with the colony. So I knew a bit how these things worked, how the Nazi underground could work in cooperation with a right-wing dictatorship, and they were very comfortable with each other, and to a certain extent with other governments around the world. Incredible. Uh, you know, Peter, you may not be a Mossad agent, but you certainly have chutzpah. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> folks, the book is called Ratline. Uh, our guest tonight, Peter Lavenda. Easy way to get the book, folks. www.nightfrightshow.com. Just click on tonight's guest book cover. It'll take you right to a spot where you can order this book and also order this book. Um, not quite the same subject matter, but this is a wonderful... The pictures in this are astounding. Uh, you're really going to love this Thank book you. as well. Absolutely beautiful stuff. You do great work, my friend. Okay, Peter, uh, we had talked about the pox and stuff. Um, I suspect, you know, you see the, the videos and the online websites about neo-Nazis now. One of the things that sent chills down my spine, and it's very true, and you picked up on this again like you did with the World War I analogy, the ultimate goal of the Third Reich was not just to conquer the world, but it was to conquer the hearts and minds of the world with Nazi ideology. Do you think they have succeeded in that goal? I think they've succeeded more at this point in, in our lives than they had even during the war. I think during the war they set themselves up as the enemy. Now they've set themselves up as the saviors. And I think this is the problem. Uh, everybody uh, in, in some developing countries are looking towards the Nazis with admiration. There is a kind of resurgence of interest in Adolf Hitler as a kind of misunderstood genius. This rewriting of history is starting to take place as we speak. It's taking place in Asia, in the Middle East, in Latin America. You can get copies of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in translation right. all over the world. Uh, there's been this renewal of interest. In India, Mein Kampf is the biggest seller in India, for God's sake. Yes, it is. 
That's uh, that's the book that um, that Hitler wrote himself about uh, how the, uh, the Zionists and the Jews were um, part and parcel to taking over the world, and this is really the basis for the Second World War and Nazism. Um, so this, all this, is absolutely chilling. Um, what I find amazing is how the right goes so far to come right back around to meet with the anarchy, the anarchists, and the terrorists on the left, on the far left, the socialists. Sure. It just, yeah, there is a please. Well, it's a pragmatic thing. Once again, there's a pragmatic approach to all of this. There's the pursuit of power. There is an ideology at the heart of it. And the ideology is a racial ideology. There's no question. Uh, race is very much part of what they're talking about. As I wrote in Holy Alliance, that there's an occult background to all of this. Uh, Hitler was very influenced by these concepts. I know that's a controversial thing to say, but I can't get past it because uh, Mein Kampf is full of that. It's dedicated to a famous occultist, um, Dietrich Eckhart, who was uh, very, very prominently involved in all of those movements in, in Germany at the time. Uh, you have uh, an occult movement. You have Himmler, who was dedicated to this, uh, to an occult ideology, a pagan ideology. And you have now this very uncomfortable uh, relationship between neo-paganism uh, around the world, but especially in the West, and, this, and the idea that paganism, Teutonic paganism, uh, various types of paganism are more real, uh, they're more genuine. They're like what our, our racial you know, ancestors believed in. The church was evil. And the church is, let's face it, the church has a lot to answer for. Uh, organized religion in general has a lot to answer for. Absolutely. So there is a focus on the neo-Nazi, from the neo-Nazis on these movements to see if there's a way to uh, collaborate with them in their own program. For the neo-Nazis to say, yes, we're pagans too. You know, yes, we're we're, we believe in the earth and in nature and all of these things as well. I mean, look at Charles Manson as an example. Charles Manson created a new, a new organization of, I forget, it's earth, uh, it's air, trees, water, and fire or something. Something like uh, which that. Which was uh, something, four like elements, that. Or something like four that. Four elements. Yeah. yeah. An ecological movement, right? A, an ecological yeah. movement. And yet at the same time, Manson was, is sort of the leading star of the American Nazi party. I mean, he was idolized by, by Nazis everywhere from James Madol of the National Renaissance Party all the way through to the American Nazi party itself. So there's this Nazi uh, attempt to uh, co-opt a lot of left-wing movements. They're trying to find out where is the common goal. You know, the right wing is too obviously right wing. You know, we've always said that, you know, when the fascists come back or when Nazism comes back, they're not going to come back with jackboots and goose-stepping and doing Heil Hitler. Yeah, they're the going to come back as guys. Yeah. Nah, they're going to come back in suits and ties. They're going to look very moderate, very reasonable, and they're going to push an ideology which is poisonous. And before we know it, you know, we're going to be goose-stepping anyway. So this is what I'm afraid of. I'm, I'm not against, please. Don't write me letters. I'm not against neo-paganism. I'm not against Wicca. I'm not against any of that. But I do know that they are susceptible to see some of these same ideas um, that the Nazis want to promote. I mean, the Nazis came from that kind of background, a new age background. Um, Can you explain a little bit of that? We've got a few minutes. Can we go into the occult sure. and uh, Hitler's desire? Well, you've all seen the, the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark by now. I think I've seen it a thousand million times. Um, sure. Hitler was after the uh, the Lost Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, um, that is said to have contained the law of God, the law of Moses, uh, the Ten Commandments. So we know for a fact that this is based on something that Hitler actually wanted to do. Can we talk a little bit more about that? Sure. The, there was a, a a good example of this is a man called 
Miguel Serrano, who died a couple of years ago. He was based in Chile. He was an ambassador of Chile to Austria, but also an ambassador to India. Uh, he was a guy who had friendships with Hermann Hesse, with Carl Jung. He knew a lot of very important people, but he was a dedicated Nazi. He wrote a magazine, created a magazine uh, back in the post-war period called The New Age. I mean, it was blatantly called New Age, and it was filled with esoteric stuff, occult stuff, pagan stuff. Uh, this is what he liked, this is what he believed. But behind this belief was the idea that Hitler was the last avatar, that Hitler was what the, the people in India and the, the Indian religions were expecting, like a kind of messiah to come back and wash the world in blood and create a new paradise on earth. He believed this. Uh, he was a firm believer to the end of his days in this. He was a friend of Walter Rauth, whom we just mentioned and talked about. He was a friend of all of these people. He helped Nazis to escape. So why? You know, what was, what was the root of this? And the root of this goes all the way back to, unfortunately, and they're going to hate me for saying this, but it goes back to um, Blavatsky, the Theosophical Society, and I'm not blaming them. But the roots are there because uh, when Darwin wrote his famous texts and talked about evolution, uh, it was a blow against organized Christianity. Christianity thought, well, the world was created in six days, God rested on the seventh, Adam and Eve, etc., etc., and now Darwin was turning all of that around. Blavatsky said, let's take this Darwinism and create a spiritual movement out of this. Let's talk about spiritual evolution, that races can grow spiritually and evolve spiritually, and that on the earth today there are evolved races, which we call the Aryans, and there are unevolved races, among which are probably the Semites including the Jews, the Arabs, and everybody else. So you can find this in Blavatsky's works. I found it in there. I've written articles about it. Um, the theosophists don't like it. I'm not attacking theosophy. The Theosophical Society today is very benign. But back in those days, back in the early days, they were very involved in nationalist movements. Mm -hmm. They were very involved in the Indian nationalist movement. As it turns out, they were involved in the Indonesian nationalist movement as well. So they were involved in nationalist anti-colonial movements uh, going back to the time of Blavatsky when she was involved in the great game. So she managed to combine esoteric, pagan um, interests, Hinduism, which she became very fond of, and Buddhism, combined all of that with a political agenda. And that fit in perfectly with the Nazi agenda. Her symbol, a swastika, which appears in her books, her concept of the Aryans, was picked up by the Nazis as their own. The swastika became their symbol. Hitler, in the trenches, in World War I, you can read John Toland's biography of Hitler, was writing poetry to Thor and Odin. I mean, Hitler had become a pagan by that time. He loved the operas of Wagner, the, the Götterdämmerung, you know, Die Valkyrie, and all the rest of it. He was very much involved in this idea of this was German greatness, that the church had emasculated the German people, and he was going to restore to them their natural, their birthright which was basically based in paganism. Hitler, Himmler, of course, the head of the SS, was a firm believer in any weird idea you had, he bought onto it. So he, had, he believed in all forms of astrology, he believed in paganism, he believed in uh, the Aryan race uh, concept, he believed in all of this and heavily financed those Indiana Jones types adventures around the world. So this was part of the Nazi ideology. The problem is it's poisoned it. So it's, it's hard for us to extract it and look at it calmly because it's mixed up with so much, it's mixed up with the Holocaust, it's mixed up with World War II, it's mixed up with all of these things. So we have, to, our task is to extract this and to save what was good from that, you know, and point out what was evil about the use of these New Age concepts by a dictatorial regime.
Peter Lavenda tonight, folks. The book is called Ratline, a Soviet Spies, Nazi Priests, and the Disappearance of Adolf Hitler. Get the book, folks. You won't be disappointed at all. Uh, com. Click on the book cover. Take you right to a spot where you can order the book from the comfort of your own home. Peter, there's, I think, a real danger in today, today's society to dismiss neo-Nazis as kind of um, a bunch of clowns because, indeed, that's what they look like. They look like they're uh, inbred. Um, but I think the real danger is the people that are in the upper echelons pulling the strings. I don't think they could survive given the given the looks uh, and how disorganized they are without some sort of master plan, I guess you could say, behind the scenes. Do you feel that there's some intelligence, I guess, or some intelligentsia behind the scenes pulling the strings? Well, they certainly were through the 1980s. There was no question of that. Uh, the Nazis who had escaped set up networks. They helped each other. They supported each other. They supported dictatorial regimes around the world. Uh, the, a lot of the infrastructure we have around the world today was supported by underground movements of Nazis, mm. Nazi ideology, Nazi money, uh, trying to influence the elections, assassinating people they didn't like. Klaus Barbie was very much involved in an assassination program called Operation Condor. Uh, which they just bumped off people they didn't like communists socialists uh, leftists not just in latin america but in europe as well so this was going on this was going on in a in a, in a dramatic way when i came back from chile in 79 my my point when i talked to the simon wiesenthal people and people like that was if you're going to talk about revenge against the nazis it's going to be a hard sell but if you're going to talk about the fact that they're still calling the shots in so many countries, in at least 20 countries worldwide, that they are extremely politically viable. They're, they're running drugs, they're running guns, they're, running, they're involved in human trafficking, in assassinations. Uh, the whole propaganda due Masonic thing in Italy had very deep connections with the Nazis back in Latin America. All of this, this is what's important. Point this out, and you're going to have a lot of people on your side who are going to say, yeah, regardless of the Holocaust, which was bad enough, these guys are still killing people, they're still putting their poisonous ideology out there. So how many people in those countries still subscribe to these ideologies now? Uh, of course they do. There's a lot of people that do. So, and we're hearing it even in the United States today. We're hearing all sorts of poisonous dialogue about these things. So it's there. Without question, and folks, uh, you had alluded to the Simon Wiesenthal Center, and a very good friend of mine is Ephraim Zurov, who's uh, the world's leading Nazi hunter from um, the Simon Wiesenthal Center in Jerusalem, by the way, folks, and uh, you can find his shows there as well. Uh, the reason I, why I mention that is because they are saying that anti-Semitism is the largest it has ever been yes. since pre-war 1930 uh, Germany, um, but this time globally, right around the world. Globally. Jews are getting blamed for everything. If you're late for a bus, blame a Jew. And I'm saying that facetiously, but this is to the extent that people are carrying this hatred and this nuttiness. Um, I want to thank you so much for this book. We're late. Okay. <laughs> but I'm so, I really wanted to get all that in. Um, folks, the book is called Ratline, Soviet Spies, Nazi Priests, and the Disappearance of Adolf Hitler. Thoroughly enjoyed it, my friend. You were on one smart cookie, and I really appreciate that. Um, Thank you very much. Terrific, terrific stuff, by the way. www.nightfrightshow.com. I'm Brent Holland. Thank you all for joining us. See you next time.
listening to Night Fright and your host, Brent Holland. The time is now. Your voice in the dark for paranormal and conspiracy radio. (laughs) 